It's so good to be back with you today at uh, New Life and to be able to spell your pastor off as he takes a well-deserved Sunday off. Um, I know Paul's been journeying with an injury. and What better injury can you have than a hockey injury, right? And uh, I asked Paul, did you score? And he did. And uh, it's worth it if you break your arm and you wreck your shoulder. Who cares? At least he got the goal, right? So... You have a wonderful pastor, and we really appreciate him. Thanks on behalf of our wider BIC family, in which I bring you greetings today for your participation in the life of uh, our community together as being Christ people across Canada. I'm not here to give a commercial today, uh, but I do want to tell you that our uh, Lent guide is coming up uh, right away. And uh, at Christmas time, we put out an Advent guide, and we had uh, just a really overwhelming response and a lot of people uh, journeying through Advent using that uh, devotional guide. Uh, last year, we put out a digital version of a, of a Lent guide. Lent's not quite as popular in our communities uh, as Advent is, it seems, but uh, we decided this year to, uh, to put out a paper version as well, or you can follow online, and that'll be coming out. Uh, Lent actually begins on February 26th, which is Ash Wednesday. And uh, if you'd like to journey through Lent along with us, there's a whole series of devotionals there, and you can pick those up. Paper copies will be available, and uh, you can follow along line with that as well. I know you're in a series on, uh, on loneliness, and I told Paul I'd try and fit in the best I could. When I was a youth worker, and uh, my wife and I went into ministry, we uh, were youth workers, and we uh, really believed that that's where God uh, would call us, and ever since then, I, I really have had a heart for that, even though I'm not uh, regularly a youth worker these days. Um, and one of the things that people would come to me over and over again, parents in, in particular, and they would talk to me about their kids, and they would say, um, my kids don't have any friends. Can you do something about that? <laughs> and I thought, um, what am I supposed to do about, about that? Around that time, there was a song um, by a lady named Amy Grant, who's now married to Vince Gill, and uh, I think kind of retired. She sings a little bit. Uh, but it came out at Christmas time. It was called My Grown-Up Christmas List, I think, or Wish, or something like that. Anyway, she listed all these things she had as, as a grown-up that she wished for. And one of the wishes was that everyone would have a friend. Everyone would have a friend. And and I just thought that was amen to that. Everyone would have a friend. That was my prayer as a youth worker. And I would tell parents, well, I can't produce friends for your kids. I can't end their loneliness. All I can do is try and create an environment that's conducive to friendships being formed where uh, kids would know uh, that we're for them and that God is for them, and Jesus is for them, and loves them, and uh, try and create a welcoming kind of environment. And to this day, that's, that's still been uh, what I think the church is supposed to be about. And so today I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to be for something, and for someone, and for people in general, and look at a couple of scriptures that talk a little bit about that, and then just uh, think a little bit about how we can apply that to our lives today, this little word, uh, for. Uh, it's family day weekend, so we're going to have a bit of fun today. So let's, let's start with a little bit of a quiz uh, today. I've got 10 things, and uh, not to do any public shaming here. So if you are embarrassed about your answer, you don't have to participate. Um, but if, if you want to, I think these are fairly innocuous. So we're, we're going to play for and against. We're going to play for and against today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something, and you have to tell me whether you're for, first of all, or against. Okay, so uh, once again, don't shame anybody around you if they don't have the same opinion, opinion you do. Uh, you can feel free to, uh, 
to, to uh, vote as you wish on this. So here, here we go. Uh, salty caramel truffle ice cream. Who, are, who is for that? Anybody against that? A few. Okay, see? I love this group. We're, we're free to disagree. Okay. Uh, wearing socks with sandals. Who is for that? Anybody? Oh, there's a few of you. Who's against that? Yeah, I would raise my hand to that. Jesus would never have done that. Okay, here, here's one. Going to an express lane at the grocery store that's clearly marked for 10 or fewer items and you have more than 10 items and you go through anyway. Who is for doing that? <laughs> Against. I won't ask who actually has done that. Uh, number four, pineapple on pizza. Pineapple on pizza, who's for that? That was invented in Canada. Who's against that? Come on. That was invented in Canada. Okay, here, here we're getting a little more controversial. Don Cherry. Who's for Don Cherry? Who's against Don Cherry? Okay, you can leave now. Okay, come on. Okay, this is my, this is my favorite one. Quinoa. Who is for quinoa? What is wrong with you? Who's against quinoa? Who's against kale or hummus or any other rest of those things? Uh, Regifting Christmas or birthday presents. Who is for that? Yeah, who's against that? Who will never do that? You never do that. Okay. Um, here's, a, here's one. Cell phones being shut off at mealtimes. Who's for that? Yeah. Against? Everybody under 20. Right. <laughs> The Canadian government offering to pay for Harry and Meghan's security charges. Who's for that? <laughs> Against? <laughs> Finally, here's one I think we probably are all for. Getting something for free. Who's for that? Well, that's today's word. For. Okay, I want you to think a little bit uh, uh, about what that looks like. There's a story that's told in Scripture. If you have a Bible uh, or you have one on your phone, that's okay too. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now, I need to tell you something about this verse. As you kind of grow up in the Christian life, you begin to understand a little bit more about it, but... Um, Maybe this is revelation to you. Do you know that there are no original copies of the scriptures? There are no original copies. Uh, sorry, not copies. There are no originals. We, can't, we don't have the original writing of the Bible, of any of the Bible. There's no original. You can't find the actual document that Paul wrote or had someone write for him. What we have are early copies. Those are called manuscripts. They're very early copies. And people made lots of copies. There were no photocopiers in those days. There were no phones, uh, camera phones. There were nothing. Only people that would copy uh, these letters out or these books. Uh, and that's why in the Old Testament they had these huge scrolls. Um, and so over time... 
people kept copying this stuff. And um, what happened, especially in the New Testament side of things, was um, sometimes the copies um, had variations to them. These were small variations. These are called textual variants. And uh, sometimes one copy had something that was just slightly different from the other copy. Now, the overwhelming um, number of these copies that we date back to the first century um, are are strikingly similar, 99.5% the same. But then there's these things called textual variants. Sometimes people believe people put stories in that were kind of part of the teaching of the early church, and they inserted those things in as the Bible was being formed. Or uh, these stories uh, occurred to somebody, the scribe that was copying these things, as maybe a story that Jesus might have told or something like that. And this story in John chapter 8 is one of these stories. So if you go to Bible school or seminary, they'll tell you, uh, just remind people that this story is not in the most ancient and the earliest uh, well-known manuscripts. So take it for what it is. It's a great story, and I think Jesus probably could have very well told this story, Um, but it amplifies really very much what we're going to talk about today, and so it's a familiar story. Listen to it as we read it today. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, and all the people gathered around him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman still was standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one commanded you? No one, sir, she said. No one condemned you, sorry. Uh, No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Stoning at this time was not a frequent thing. It was kind of an arbitrary thing. It was still practiced at that time, even though they were under Roman occupation. Um, This was a complete misreading of the law of Moses, and you might ask uh, why. what happened to the man who was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, In this culture, um, fundamentally nothing oftentimes, even though I don't think that was the intent uh, of the law. But this is a passage about condemnation uh, about a person feeling all alone standing all alone and having everyone shame her and condemn her certainly not being for her and Jesus runs these people off and then says that he doesn't condemn her as well in Romans 8 31 to 39 we read these words which is, amazing, or is an amazing concept right at the end of this wonderful chapter. What shall we say? What then shall we say in response to all these things? The things that uh, the writer in Romans has said that is true about what God does for us. And we find these simple words. If God is for us, who 
can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against who, those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangerous sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. N.T. Wright, in commentating on this passage, he's one of the commentators that I love the best these days, and, and he says this passage is really about for and against, the game we just played a few minutes ago. This is a for and against passage. He rightly points out that this, this passage contains a, a little bit of, a, of an inventory of things that come against us. Verse 31 the writer says, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge against us spiritually? Verse 33. Who will condemn us spiritually? Verse 34. Who will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? The air of surprise relief per pervades this closing section of this amazing chapter. We look around to see who has condemned us, and we discover they're all gone, N.T. Wright says. We are the woman caught in the act of adultery. Look around and see the many things that threaten to separate us from the powerful love which reaches out to us through the cross and through the resurrection and begin to learn that all of these foes are beaten. N.T. Wright says, God is for you. God is for me. In a world where we feel things are often stacked against us, the good news, God is for us. What does it mean to be for someone? Well, it means to be in favor of them, to approve of them, to want the best for them, to believe in them no matter what, to see the potential that exists in them, to cheer them on, to expect the best, to speak well of, to sacrifice for, to show love to, to see that person when no one else does. I want to tell my kids over and over again, even though they're adults now, that mom and dad are for you. Even when you mess up. My son called the other night from the city and he hit black ice and he plowed into the back end of somebody when he was visiting his girlfriend. And he called the phone on the phone and he was, he was trembling. And he said, Dad, I, I hit somebody. And uh, we tried to respond, but more than anything, I just want him to know we're for him. We're for him. We'll get you through this. It's okay. You can, you can navigate this. And he's had some learning disabilities over the years and things that he struggled with. And, and sometimes his self-esteem kind of wavers. He needed to know we were for him. This world has so tainted us so oftentimes that we think everyone sometimes is against us. And sometimes the church has fed into that. 
three things I think emerge from this idea of being for. First of all, the first truth is we need to learn to live in this. This is the truth that we need to learn to live in. I think because of the fall, because of what happened in the garden when we sinned, that uh, we struggle with this. We always seem to think that sometimes things are stacked against us. And sometimes we think that God is against us, just waiting to step out of line. And I am amazed how many people kind of think of God that way. They think he's kind of like a parent that uh, when we get a B and we come home, uh, they say, why didn't you get an A? Maybe for some of us, that's kind of an echo of human voices from the past of someone that's treated us that way and we hear our own securities coming out over and over again and it's hard for us to believe that God is for us. Sometimes I'm around, we're not grandparents yet, um, but I'm around grandparents quite a bit these days um, among our friends and it's amazing how many pictures they have on their phones of their grandkids. And it doesn't take much to get them to pop that, that out and show it to you. Not much at all. You know that. Tony Campolo says you, God has a picture of you on his phone. He loves you. And maybe the start, place to start today in this journey of reaching out to lonely people, and if you're feeling alone, is just to remember that, first of all, God loves you. And he's for you. Romans says. Uh, secondly, this is the message that we live in, and it's the message then that we present. Now, we know that it's not always been this way in the church. Sometimes people outside of spiritual communities, churches, have come to understand that churches are kind of against people rather than for people. That's kind of what they think we're all about. Um, once again, Tony Campolo tells this story about his early days in ministry when he was pastoring a small church in a very uh, a rural area. And uh, a young woman in, in that town had become pregnant and she was not yet married. The word was out and there was gossip about her everywhere. And he said, uh, my wife and I went to see her and uh, we explained the forgiveness of God to her and she was open to that, to a new start, and she responded, surprisingly, to um, that invitation, and she received Jesus. And I watched the joy, he says, cross her face as she understand, understood for the first time that she was loved, that God was for her. I wasn't surprised then, after the invitation went out, that she showed up at church the next Sunday, and the Sunday after that. And in, then he said, after those two Sundays, she stopped coming. And so we went to visit her again and asked why she wasn't attending the church anymore. And she said, I can't. Every time I go into your church, I get the feeling that I'm dirty and I'm no good. Tony responded, you shouldn't feel that way. Jesus is for you. He's forgiven you. And he has forgotten. And she responded, Jesus may have forgiven and Jesus may have forgotten. But the people at your church, they're not like Jesus. They haven't forgiven, and they haven't forgotten. Sometimes we don't do a good job in the church of living in this message of being for people. One of the saddest days of pastoring was when a man from our church who should have known better 
uh, came into my office and we had a lady that was precisely uh, in this situation. Uh, She was very much alone and she was pregnant and she was coming to church all the time. And he came into my office and sat across from my desk and he said to me, what are we going to do about her? What are we going to do about her? I said, we're going to love her. We're just going to love her. I don't think my answer satisfied him. You see, we need to learn to live in this idea that God is for us. And then we need to learn to transmit that idea in our personal lives and in our church communities. This is the approach that we utilize that our church is known as an outpost of being for people. When you do something like uh, this movie about anxiety, which every study comes back and says that people under 25 are struggling with, it's the number one issue. It tells me you want to be for your community. And I hope that each of our churches are known as places that are for the community in which they live. Jeremiah 29.7, the prophet Jeremiah is writing back uh, from the place uh, where he's held up. He's still in Jerusalem. He's writing to the people that are in exile in Babylon. And they're hoping to hear this little message that that God's going to take you out of Babylon and restore you to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah just won't say it. He says, you're going to be there for a while. Um, Get used to it. Doesn't mean God's abandoned you. It means you're going to be there for a while. And then he gives them this advice. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Turns out this idea of being for people is actually good for you. It's good for all of us. If it prospers, Jeremiah says, you too will prosper. As you begin to bless the people around you, as you begin to bless your community that your church is in, God, as a way of boomeranging that blessing, back to you. What goes around comes around. The old saying is true. Tony Evans tells a story about a man who had broken into a house, broken into a house, and he stole a gun from this person who had an antique gun collection. Uh, Only the guy didn't know that it was an antique gun collection. He just found the gun. This is a U.S. story, obviously. And uh, (laughs) he stole a a Smith & Wesson gun that apparently was worth thousands of dollars. It was some kind of vintage weaponry. He used the store... Uh, this gun to rob a convenience store of which he stole uh, $83. He got caught robbing the store and he ended up going to jail for the $83. When he held up the store with a gun that was worth several thousand dollars. Tony Evans points out that the actual solution to his problem was already in his hands. Um, I wonder if this whole idea 
of trying to reach out into our community, trying to evangelize our community. We use those terms a lot. Just really is nothing more than trying to be for people and for the lonely and for the left out and for the people that don't think anybody cares about them. And being known as a church that is just for people, being known as people that are absolutely for people. If God be for us, who can be against us? So two questions today. First of all, do you deep in your soul, in your heart, believe that God is for you? Or are you still living in that kind of a condemnation kind of story? I think a lot of people are. They just kind of are, have, have never kind of got the grace kind of message of the gospel. And if that's true, you need to kind of just camp out here in Romans chapter 8 and hear this story all over again that God is for you. The love of God is flowing to you in the person of Jesus. God is for you. Drink it in. Meditate on it. He loves you. And he's for you. He wants you to succeed. And then the second question, who are you for? When we uh, participated years ago in the, in the Operation Andrew program of the Billy Graham crusade that came to Toronto, we had to, to form a list. We were supposed to be like Andrew who kind of brought his friends to Jesus. And so they told us to form a list of people that we could invite to the crusade. And uh, that was, that's how we kind of were supposed to go at this Operation Andrew thing. I, I think these days maybe we should just have a list that we carry around of like, the five or six people that we just want to be for. We just want to be for. That those people that we would identify in our lives, that God's put into our lives, and it may be your family, it may be people that you work with, it may be people that live next door to you, it may be people that God brings across your path. I don't know who it is. That God would be saying to you, I want you to be for that person. If nobody else in the world, if that person doesn't have anybody else in the world that thinks they have an advocate, you be that person. For them, you just do everything you can to be for that person. Who would God be putting on your heart that He wants you to be that kind of person too? When we uh, started out in youth ministry, I came across a story that I want to conclude with today. And we wanted to build this kind of environment. Um, we wanted to build this kind of church that, that was for people. And in the grace of God, we were able to do that for a time. And I remember this girl uh, that came into our youth group. The reason I remember her is she passed away this past week. Her name was Jenny, Jenny Ingram. She was 50 years old. She had uh, stage four ovarian cancer, and she passed away uh, this, this week in B.C., Facebook's a wonderful thing because it allowed us to reconnect and we were able to see Jenny again a few years ago. Uh, she came into our youth group and she was from a very broken background, a very broken home. Her father had taken off somewhere. Her mother had relocated from the Maritimes uh, to Stova, where we were living. And her mother wasn't very nice to her. And uh, she just came from a very terrible background. And some of the girls from our youth group began to befriend her and invited her to come to our youth group, and she found a home there. She found Jesus there. And she walked with Jesus all her days, and she died in a beautiful way. 
even though she was suffering terribly and she trusted the Lord. Uh, but I think to myself, what if we hadn't had a place for a person named Jenny? If she didn't know we were for her. One of my youth leaders, uh, Dave, she, uh, she would get red in the face, Jenny, I remember. And, and he'd always ask her, every time he'd see her, if she had fish for supper. Because she was from the Maritimes. <laughs> and she'd get so mad at him. She just knew he was messing with her. And she just felt like part of the family. And uh, I've watched the kids that were part of that youth group pop back up on Facebook these days and try to remember those days a little bit and think about her. The environment we were trying to build was um, modeled around a story that I had found by a youth worker that was a mentor uh, to many of us those days in youth ministry. It's a story... uh, called I'm running as fast as I can and I think it really sums up what it means to be for other people. Please allow me to share it with you as I conclude today. One of the most interesting things about kids sporting events is the parents reaction to their children. Recently I attended my daughter's track meet. On the fourth and final lap of the boys um, one mile run, once again this is America, everyone was clumped together except for the two front runners who were leading the pack uh, by a few meters, a few yards. As the runners came toward the finish line, the crowd began cheering wildly. Just then, I happened to look back, three quarters of a lap back, and there, hopelessly last, was a short, portly kid who never should have walked a mile, let alone run one. His entire body was wobbling toward the finish line, and his bright red face was twisted in the kind of pain that made me wonder if death was near. Suddenly, I was brushed by by a frantic parent who was leaping down from the bleachers to the railing surrounding the track. It was obvious that this was the poor boy's mother. She then yelled at the top of her lungs, Johnny, run faster! (laughs) I will never forget that moment and the look of hopelessness on Johnny's face. He had to have been thinking, run faster? What do you think is the problem here? I just forgot to run faster? I'm running as fast as I can. Iaconelli says this, the writer, I don't know how many times I have felt just like Johnny. I attend church on Sunday, weary from a week of struggle and sometimes failure, and I hear the pastor say, what? Run faster. I attend a seminar on time management, desperate for some encouragement and new insights. And what does the seminar leader say? Run faster. I come to a church for a spiritual retreat and find calm in the midst of chaos of my life. And what do I hear? Sometimes run faster. Isn't it ironic that the result of most conferences, retreats, sermons, and seminars is not to make us feel better, but to actually make us feel worse? And I hope that's not true today. My very attendance at the event is a public confession that I need help in the speaker's very position announces to all of us that they have answers. And when they do their talk and show their PowerPoint presentations and tell their stories, it drives the nails in even harder. I come away from the conference feeling even more strongly that I, in fact, do need help. I feel stupid and I feel inadequate that I wasn't able, on my own, to discover the simple and easy suggestions that were suggested by the speaker. That's bad enough, but I try the simple and the easy suggestions, and of course they don't work as magically and as easily as the speaker told me they would, and then I'm really convinced I'm a failure. We are making a terrible mistake. 
We should not be yelling, run faster. What we ought to be yelling to people like Johnny is, Johnny, way to go. You shouldn't have even been in this race, but you're running. And the fact that you tried is amazing, and it's heroic. It's time for the so-called followers of Jesus to quit emphasizing what people aren't doing right and start praising them for the small steps they're beginning to make to correct. We ought to proclaim a moratorium on advice giving and instead start a process of celebrating each person's move, small as it may be, toward God. This culture bombards us with our inadequacies. We are told in a million different ways that we are too heavy, too ugly, too klutzy, too underdeveloped, too unorganized, too ignorant, too sexually inadequate, too incompetent, too uncool. And then sometimes we go to church and we hear the same things. We're too unspiritual, too worldly, too apathetic, too selfish, too lazy, too ungiving, too compromising. Sometimes we get co-opted by our culture. The Bible says well, that they'll know their disciples of Jesus by the way they love each other, by the way they're for each other. Shouldn't that mean that we are in the shocking business of encouraging and building up and affirming and celebrating each other? It runs totally counterintuitive to this culture that we live in. I ought to look forward to being with my brothers and sisters at church even when I fail because I know that they will love me and encourage me even in my failure to move forward. The church should be at the forefront of encouragement, affirmation, love, and support rather than just another place in this culture when I can have my self-esteem destroyed, my significance ridiculed, and my worth disputed. I don't know about you, but I'm running as fast as I can. I don't need to be told to run faster. The good news today is God is for us. And we want to build a community that's not a run faster kind of community. That's a place of love and acceptance, a place of welcome. We want our homes to be like that. We want our lives to radiate this sense that God is for us. Who can be against us? And I am for you. I have a feeling when our communities live like that, when we live like that as followers of Jesus, when we seek the prosperity and the blessing of those around us, our ship will rise as well and blessing will follow and lives will be changed just like it was for my friend Jenny. Let me pray for you today. Father, I pray for these dear friends today at New Life Church in Collingwood and I know in so many ways they're living out this message already. Thank you for that. May every person here today know how much they're loved by Jesus. May they know, Jesus, that you long to have a relationship with them. And may they hear your still small voice calling them to yourself. May each of us know every day deep in our souls that we're forgiven. That all the things that we've done and said in our past that we may be uh, completely ashamed about if everybody knew about them. Lord, you know about them and you love us anyway. And so help us to live out of that place of grace that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And then Lord, help us to take this message on the road and to live it out even today to the people that you're placing into our small circle that we would identify that you call us to be for our kids, our spouse, 
our friends, our family, to the one that we see that's lonely and left out this week, that you would say, they don't have anybody. They don't have a friend. Why don't you be that person to them? And so, Lord, help us as we live this out this week. Thank you that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Thank you that your love flows to each and every one of us and meets us right where we are, as broken and messed up and flawed as we often are, and begins to transform us. And we hear these words, come follow me. Just come follow me. Leave your life behind and come live in the new things that I have for you. Thank you for this church. May it be a light post, a lighthouse of foreness for this community, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.